Oasis. Practical Wisdom with Scott Allen. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you are in this beautiful world. My name is Scott Allen, and I am the host of Phronesis, Practical Wisdom for Leaders. I am an Associate Professor of Management at John Carroll University in Cleveland, Ohio, USA. I'm an author, an entrepreneur, a speaker, a nonprofit founder, and the host of two podcasts. I'm also a husband and dad of three. You just heard from Kate, my daughter, who wrote and performed the Phronesis intro. Phronesis offers a smart, fast-paced discussion on all things leadership. My guests are scholars and practitioners, and we cover timely, relevant topics and incorporate practical tips designed to help you make a difference in how you lead and live. Now, I am proud to share that Phronesis is the official podcast of the International Leadership Association, an association that is near and dear to my heart. ILA brings together leaders and those who teach, study, and develop leadership, advancing leadership knowledge and practice for a better world. Learn more at ilaglobalnetwork.org. If you like what we're up to, please click subscribe so you can stay up to date as we release new episodes each week. You can also share what we're up to with others. And now, today's show. Hello, everybody. This is Scott Allen. Today, I have Jim Kuzes. And Jim, you know, Jim, is it the best-selling leadership book of all time? Is that is that accurate? Uh, it, it's up there. I don't know if I have comparative figures, the best-selling, but we, we've been... First edition was published in 1987, and it's continued to sell since then. So it has a lot of long legs to it. Long, long legs. Well, I, I have a story I'm going to share with you in a moment. But Jim Kuzis, everybody, award-winning, best-selling author, co-author of The Leadership Challenge with Barry Posner, uh, over, a, over a dozen other books on leadership, including the latest work that they put out, uh, Everyday People, Extraordinary Leadership. And that's really where we're going to spend a lot of our time today. He's also a fellow of the Door Institute for New Leaders at Rice University. The Wall Street Journal named Jim one of the 10 best executive educators in the U.S. He's received the Distinguished Contribution to Workplace Learning and Performance Award from ASTD and so many other professional honors. Jim, I told you I was going to tell you a little bit of a story. Your work with Barry fundamentally shifted the trajectory of my life. So I know that when you begin these works and you put it out into the world, uh, you have no no idea how that's going to impact other people. And here I am, this guy in Cleveland, Ohio, that you've never met, and your work impacted the trajectory of my career in very, very wonderful ways. My first supervisor held a book club at 7 a.m. on Thursdays. <laughs> a little early. And we read the Leadership <laughs> Challenge. Now, this is a little bit of an odd story. I was working for a fraternity, and it was in Oxford, Ohio, and every Thursday, we met and we talked about the leadership challenge. And we struggled and we argued and we were working to challenge the process because what our organization was, was not living up to the values of what it was intended to be. And we had a number of people in the system who weren't modeling the way. And your book served as this impetus for not only transformational change within that organization, but it was the first time that I understood that leadership could be this thing that you would study, 
that you would do research on and that it was a, a something I could learn and I could get degrees in. I had no clue. So that was the start. That was the first leadership book I ever read. And that was the beginning of my trajectory in this whole space as a professor, et cetera. And for that, I thank you. I thank you. Well, it, it is our pleasure. Thank you for sharing that story, Scott. You made my day, made my week. <laughs> you made my last 30 years. <laughs> <laughs> well, we've been at it for a long time. So it's a, it's, it's, it's a delight to, to be able to talk with you about our, our most recent work. Yeah. Tell me real quick, if you would, tell me the impetus of the original book. What, what, really sparked your enthusiasm for this topic of leadership. Because at the time, this book is coming out with some of the work by Bernard Bass in transformational leadership. It's coming out with some of the, the works by, by Conger at the time. Talk a little bit about the impetus of Leadership Challenge. And then, yeah, I'd love to jump to the latest work. <laughs> well, thanks for asking. It is a, a rather Longish story, but let me give you the short version. Barry and I, <laughs> Barry Poser and I met at Santa Clara University and we began to work together. I was the director of the Executive Development Center, worked with the management department to staff uh, a number of our programs. Barry was one of the most popular faculty member members uh, among the executive community that we served. And he and I discovered we had some common interests. So in, in, in looking at those common interests, one of the things was on managerial values. We wrote our first paper together. And we started a series of seminars on, on corporate culture, a very popular topic at the time, as you can recall. A theory Z, a lot of Japanese management literature was coming out at that time. And one of the things that resulted from that was to talk about excellent companies. Barry and I had this notion that we should also be talking about excellent leaders. But as we began to explore that topic, and Bass was one of those we were very familiar with, of course, and Conger, Jay Conger, and, and others, Warren Bennis writing at the time. Uh, but we, what we were reading was mostly about senior executives in corporations or historical famous leaders. And we said to ourselves, you know, there are leaders everywhere and not just in excellent companies. Let's take a look at middle-level managers for the most part inside organizations who are leading, but maybe people aren't even recognizing they're leading because it's always about CEOs and senior executives in the C-suite. So we took a look at that topic and we asked ourselves, well, how are we going to research this? What, what are we going to do? So because we started out initially as an exploratory study and we said, why don't we ask people to tell us their personal best leadership experience? It just so happened that around the time we were talking about this, there was an Olympics and we kept hearing the personal best Olympic performance or the personal best time for somebody's meet, track meet. And so we said, why don't we ask leaders about their personal best? That would be an interesting study. And as we began to gather case study after case study after case study and story after story, we noticed, as did other people who were in seminars with us, who were sharing their stories, that there were some common themes. And it was that aha experience of seeing common themes emerge from just one question. Tell us about a time when you were at your best. What were you doing when you were at your best as a leader? That people shared these common themes, which ended up after much, many iterations, the five practices of exemplary leadership. And uh, we published the book, The Leadership Challenge, based on that research. 
Well, and I remember what was beautiful about that work, and you just alluded to it, and that's where we're going to start as we transition to everyday people, extraordinary leadership. It was it was a book where I could see myself in it, even though I didn't necessarily have a formal title or position of authority. Uh, I, I wasn't a manager, quote unquote, but I I internalized the concept that I could inspire a shared vision, that I could model the way, that I could embody each of the five practices without position or authority, that I could make a difference. And that was a my, that was a shift. That was a huge shift because before reading that, I'd had this notion that, you know, well, you have to have the title. You have to have the position before you can do anything. And I think that that was so wonderful. And it gets a little bit to the heart of this current work. And where so where I want to start with that, you say, you come out and say it. Leadership is not a position. It's a relationship. So talk about that. Say some more, sir. In, in looking at this topic, as you were back the, that many years ago, 1980, starting uh, really in 83, Everybody was referring to leadership as if it were a position, a title. And as we explored this story, particularly with middle-level managers and organizations, they began to tell us stories about times when they were coaches of teams. It wasn't necessarily inside an organization, although most of the stories were. But even uh, we heard stories when people were parents and things that they did with their kids. And it just dawned on us that leadership is not about somebody with a title and authority. It's about a, a set of skills and abilities of actions that you take, things that you do, based on a relationship you have with other people. Leadership is not a solo act. It is an, something you do with others. And so it just, after hearing these stories so many times, it, it was really about relationships and the, the quality of the relationship you had with your constituents, how well you knew them, how well they knew you. Uh, whether you had a belief that they could do extraordinary things and, and communicated that to other people, whether you trusted them and they trusted you. And so it, it was the quality of that relationship which ended up being really the focus of the five practices. Not It is about what leaders do, but it's about what leaders do to build and sustain a relationship with constituents so that constituents want to follow them. And that was an important part of our definition of leadership. People want to follow you, not because you hold a title, not because you are the boss, but because they are internally motivated to want to do something extraordinary uh, and that you believe that they can. Well, and you also frame it up right in the beginning Look, credibility is foundational. Relationships are foundational. It's a relationship. It's not necessarily a title, but credibility. Would you unpack that? So as part of this initial study, uh, we did actually prior to writing about the five practices, we were looking at, at the qualities that people w expected and wanted from their leaders. And we, so we asked the question, what do you look for and admire in a leader, someone whose direction you would willingly follow? And that was the question. And we listed 20 key words, things like cooperative, honest, supportive, somebody who shows respect. I mean, those were so key words and then some three or four synonyms to go with each. So because honesty and integrity and tells the truth and fall into the same bucket. And we gave people a list. 
and they began, we asked them to select the top seven from the 20. And what happened repeatedly, and we just did this during the pandemic to make sure the pandemic didn't change anything significant, was that those qualities which were desired by more than 50% of the respondents. So in other words, if you're running an election based on qualities, not on a person, these were the ones that would win, if you will. And though the, the number one quality was honest, and the number two quality or characteristic people looked for and desired in leader was competent. Well, honest and competent are the two most important ingredients in what's called in the research source credibility. You believe in the source of information. And so honest and competent, even as most recently as last week, when I I did a seminar with about 20 people, 100% of them selected honest as an example. Overall, about 85% of people want to have a leader who's honest. And uh, about 66 select competent. So as we looked at what people said they looked for and admired in the leader, and we compared that to other research that had been done on this topic, again, we saw that in the research on source credibility, that was the one word which explained it all, that it was credibility as the foundation of leadership. You know, Scott, one of the things that this reminds me of is when you do research, as you know, you don't. You, you have hypotheses about what you're going to find, but some of the most interesting things you find are what you don't expect. <laughs> <laughs> and we initially had no idea what people would pick when they they selected the 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 seven of twenty, and it, and and because two qualities in particular, and f- two others in addition, forward looking and and inspiring, were selected by fifty one percent or more of people. We, of course, had to repeat that a number of times to make sure it wasn't biased of the, a particular sample. And and to find it continuously just reminds us of what really is the most important foundational element in leading others who want to follow you. So it's remained pretty durable over time. Very durable. I, I think sometimes there's a really famous TED Talk, and I know you've seen it, but there's a famous TED talk by Drew Dudley where it's called Everyday Leadership. And he really, the primary message of this is, I think we at times make leadership bigger than us. We talk about Lincoln, we talk about Gandhi or Mandela or people on the global stage. When each one of us in, whether it's within our family or in our community or in our place of worship or in an association, whatever it is for you, uh, we can make a difference. And regardless of the level, we can make a difference. We can challenge the process. We can model the way. We can inspire a shared vision. We can encourage the heart. So it breaks that down, that that leadership is not this gigantic, massive entity that is not accessible to all of us. It it can happen, to your point, on the ball field, right? As a coach in (laughs) T-ball. Absolutely. So, again, going because... Some of them are interesting things or things you don't expect to get. We did a study, leader role models, you know, speaking of people like Gandhi and Mandela and Lincoln and uh, others who would end up being on that list. We asked people to think about leaders that they looked for and admired. Who was your number one person on the list that you would say was your leader role model? And we provided categories 
for people to respond to f- uh, categories of a business leader or in a, in a, a, a co-worker or a religious leader or a political leader, an athlete or an entertainer, a, a family member, a teacher or a coach. And again, over time, every time we repeat this study to make sure that what we're reporting is current, family member ends up being at the top of the list, particularly parents, of that one leader that people would look to as a leader role model. Uh, individuals under 25, so people who have not yet started a career or only a couple years into a career, 62% select a family member. At work, people then, in terms of ages over 25, where people are in their early years or been in a career for a long time, 47% select a family member. So it's still the far outpaces any other category in terms of where people look for a leader role model. Teachers and coaches are second on the list for under 25. They're third on the list for those still at work. So we still remember that teacher or that coach, whether in grade school, high school, or, or university, that worked with us and taught us. That's, that's second for those uh, younger, those uh, at work. It's third on the list. And interestingly, the second person on the list for those at work is their immediate manager, not the CEO, not a famous business person that gets all the press, not a political leader, but their immediate manager, their immediate supervisor. And colleagues are also up there in the top top five sources of leader role models. So what this data tells us, you add it all up and you say, yes, sure, we can write about CEOs and we can write about famous leaders, but those aren't the most important people individuals look to as a model for how they would lead. The most important leaders are those people who are closest to us, whether it's a parent or a teacher or coach when we're younger and in school, or whether it's an immediate supervisor at work. And that's really important for people to keep in mind that when you're leading and you're someone's immediate manager, you could be their role model for leadership. Same goes for parents. (laughs) Everyday people, extraordinary leadership. Because I only, just because I'm in charge of this team of five, don't doesn't mean I can't be that person that crosses their path. That is that person they think of thirty years down the road as the incredible leader that they worked for. And so, that's liberating in a sense because all of us can practice all day long, whether that's in our family, whether again I could go through that list of <laughs> settings, <laughs> yes. but we can all practice, right? Absolutely. You know, if we're on a committee of a, of a local uh, religious organization or in, in, a, in a, your, your, your local town where you're doing some fundraising for an event coming up, you can practice these five practices of exemplary leadership that we write about. You can model the way for other people. You can inspire them to share a vision of what your community could become. You can challenge them to to try new things and innovate and create. You 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 can also make sure that they build trust with each other and they work collaboratively together. And you can encourage them, recognize them. You can do all those things without some fancy title. And it's that's a, such a liberating concept. It just is, because it means all of us can engage in the activity of leading others, and all of us can practice that work each and every day. And, and each one of us can learn, develop, and grow, especially if we have that mindset, right? Absolutely. Especially if we have that mindset. 
you also the two of you really explore the the another foundational piece of this text is just clarifying your values. Talk a little bit about that, Jim. Well, as you know, from working in a Jesuit institution, as as you and I and Barry, where we Barry and I met, share that background, that experience, it's a very important in those institutions values. And so Barry and I first met each other. Uh, when we first met each other, we found that we had a common interest in values. And our actual first paper together was written about values called Shared Values Make a Difference. And what we we found in that research is that the more individuals are clear about their personal values, the more committed they are to the organization, even more so than if they are very aware of what the organizational values are, but not aware of what their own values are. It Personal values drive commitment. And so it became a, an important part of our work because if you don't know what you believe in, it's hard to set an example for other people of what the standards, the values, the principles, the beliefs are that we should be upholding. You can't do what you say if you don't have something to say. You know, do what you say you will do is sort of the popular definition of what credibility is. Put your money where your mouth is, walk the talk. Well, if you don't have the talk, how can you walk it? Because values are so foundational, that's among, when we do leadership development, that's among the first things we ask people to do and to make sure that they not only do that for themselves, but have their teams do that with each other and talk openly about personal values. And then take a look at the organizational values and where is there alignment or not alignment? Is there fit or no fit? It doesn't have to be the exact same words that you could say cooperative and teamwork and means the same thing, but it, they have to you look at a Venn diagram, they have to merge. There's overlap. Or there has to be overlap. We're in the same space. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and Inspire the Share, I, I loved how you all framed up this, this whole notion of listening deeply in inspiring a shared vision. Because I think at times, and I, and I know it's not embedded in these words, but Inspire a Shared Vision, I think... It, at times, people can read that as, and you need to now speak your vision to the whole team, and they will just buy in and be very, very excited. But no, you're saying, look, you're underscoring this shared component. And have you listened? Have you done the work? And are you really, really investigating what it is that we value, what it is that we could become? And are you listening deeply to what others are thinking? Yeah, absolutely. Another that That's another, I think, myth is one word that comes to mind, but maybe misunderstanding is another that that leaders are the ones who have to come up with the vision. Well, it's true that leaders need to be able to articulate a vision of the future in such a way that other people want to go to that place that leaders are talking about. But if it's going to be something that people want to go to, want to follow, then they have to see themselves in the picture. <laughs> One one of the kind of analogies we use uh, is is to think about a jigsaw puzzle. And when, when if I were to bring a, a a thousand piece jigsaw puzzle into a room and a team of people and put it on the table and take the box away and walk away with the box, what is the first per, first thing that people want to see? Want to ask me as as the leader? What's the picture? Well, yeah. It's, well, hey, hey, boss. What, what, what's the end result supposed to look like? Show me the box top. That's the first impulse people have. They want to see the end result. 
then they begin begin to put their pieces in play, you know, the pieces in place as a group. But we give people what we call a job or a task, and we say, okay, put this piece in the right place. Oh, okay, I, maybe I could do that over time if I can figure out what the heck it looks like, but it'd be a lot easier if you'd tell me what it looks like or show me the picture. So analogously, leaders need to show people the box top so they can say, <laughs> oh yeah, now I can see what we're trying to create together. That makes a lot of sense to me. Yes, I want to do that. Uh, and and so to do that, we also need to understand then their values, their vision of the future, where they're coming from, what their aspirations, hopes, dreams, and, and, and hopes and dreams are. And then when people hear that, they are nodding their heads and saying, "Yes, I can see myself in that picture." And I have I have fuel for that future state, and I'm excited and enthused by that notion. Right? I, I, yeah, I got energy for it, and yeah. and. Ha- Hey, because I want it so much, if need be, during a tough time, I'm willing to put in extra effort, discretionary effort, to make that happen. So, Jim, I, I really am interested in knowing, as you reflect on this work for 30 years, 30 plus years, what are some things that, as you think about this work, still confuse you, frustrate you? What what keeps you intrigued? <laughs> What's on your mind these days as you're thinking about this topic? Well, well, Scott, we're now working on the seventh edition of the Leadership Challenge, Barry and I. And so we had a conversation just last week about what's current, what's new right now that's challenging us, that we need to be writing about, that we weren't writing about five years ago when the last edition came out. And so we're always curious about those new contextual issues people are facing. Right now, of course, it's been the pandemic and remote work and work from anywhere and also social justice issues, diversity, equity, inclusion. Those are at the top of everyone's list right now. And how do leaders respond to those issues? How do, how do the five practices fit into this, this context? Uh, and there are a few others. Uh, you know, trust has declined. Uh, how are we going to trust is such an important ingredient in in a- everything, in innovation, and in teamwork, and productivity. How are we going to deal with that issue? So those intrigue me. Always intrigue me. What is current, and how how can leaders respond to that in ways that look at these adversities as opportunities? to do new and significant things at work. What inspires me is how many people are are coming to realize that leadership is everyone's business, that everyday people can be extraordinary leaders, and and beginning to say to themselves, yes, I can lead this initiative. I can do something to help deal with the issues that we're talking about. And during the pandemic, we gathered some wonderful stories about what or, you know, ordinary people did to get extraordinary things done. So that, that inspires me to see more and more people assume that they can become better leaders. Of course, what confuses me right now is earlier today, you know, listening to the news and just shaking my head, wondering how are leaders, how leaders who aren't honest and tell the truth, can be, who who don't exhibit that honesty quality, who aren't truthful, can continue to have a large percentage of people want to follow them. 
It's a very confusing message, one hard to get your head around. And we're trying to unpack that one a little bit for this this uh, coming edition. When you have an individual who's been elevated to, again, a position of authority, who blatantly isn't modeling the way, blatantly isn't inspiring a shared vision. And how how is that? How is it that they, in that context, were elevated to the role that they were and then some of the great damage that that can do, just damage. Yes, that part is true, Scott. And it's also true that if if a large percentage of people want to follow that person, then at some level they must believe in that person. That person has a credibility. And so we need to begin to ask ourselves how we can help people who may not understand the facts, the truth, the science, to better understand it. That's what's confusing about this. Why aren't, why are people believing someone who doesn't get the facts straight, if you will, doesn't tell the truth about what's really going on and, and outright lies about it? Or, or have their best interest at heart in some cases, yeah. right? Well, I think they think that he, we're talking about Trump here. Yeah. <laughs> so, they think he does, and they believe in him. And how is it that, that, that people can come to believe in someone who lies and believe in someone who doesn't get the facts straight? And what is our responsibility as educators? What, what is our responsibility as citizens to help others understand without getting into high conflict, uh, what Amanda Ripley in her new book, High Conflict, talks about, that how do we avoid getting into high conflict we can still have differences, but how do we get to a place where we can have a conversation about those differences and come to some common understanding? Because again, there's large factions of people that would perceive or experience that individual as challenging the process, inspiring a shared vision, modeling the way, encouraging others to act. But when it's misguided or when it lacks truth, it's I'm amazed by that as well. It's confusing. It, 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 it is. It's, it's very confusing. That's why it's so difficult to, to get your head around it and unpack it. That's, a, that's been probably the most challenging task that we're facing right now is, as people who write about this topic is, is to try to explain this, but even more than just explain it. How do we create unity when, when there is such high conflict in our society? And, and it's not just the U.S. This is a global problem. As you know from your, your own work, looking at studies of trust right now, trust is globally has diminished, particularly in large institutions like government. And so we, we have got a lot of work to do to bridge that gap. Big, It's big business, the the media, and it's, it's multi-billion dollar industries that are, are fueling and fanning the flames at times. And... On, on either side, right? I mean, that could be late night TV and those comedians, or it could be Rush Limbaugh on the right. I mean, it, there's people f- making a good money othering the other. And to your point, that then causes resentment and that causes frustration and anger. And then we don't get to a conversation, which is ultimately where we need to be, right? If we, if we can come to some common understanding about the, the needs and aspirations uh, and hopes and dreams of of all of us. My guess is that if we started talking about what we want f- 
in our lives, we'd find there's more commonality. And we get into high conflict when we make someone the other, and we start to see them as enemy rather than citizen or neighbor. Uh, And if we can begin to have conversations that are about what we all hope and dream for in our lives, yes, there'll be differences. There'll be people who don't want to associate with certain kinds of other individuals. They, they don't, they, they are afraid that their, their values are being attacked. Their way of life is going to be lost on both sides of, of this conflict. But if we can begin to talk more about those things that we share, the aspirations that we share, I think we can make some progress. But it's, it, it is a, a huge challenge. The, the good news, the or the silver lining for organizational leaders, is that right now, people see their leaders inside organizations as more credible than those outside. So as we talk and train and develop leaders inside organizations, uh, or those who are in our local communities, to display more understanding and empathy and receptiveness to issues of, of diversity, equity, inclusion, or uh, issues of the kinds of challenges that people are facing in their lives post-pandemic and difficulties that they're facing, the more we can begin to talk about those things. And uh, we'll, we'll start to at least have a conversation. Well, I was just reflecting as you were talking about just those last couple issues. It must be really interesting to reflect back on the different editions and to look at your model through the lens of what was happening at that time, right? I mean, it has to be really interesting to look back through what was happening in the context that you were writing about, and then looking at those events through the lens of your model. Scott, uh, thank you for reminding me of that. One of the things that has been consistent over time, and actually, there's a lot that's been consistent over time, uh, because we keep testing the five practices against current reality and ask the question, do these still matter? Do they make a difference? And what we find is the more frequently people engage in model-inspired, challenge-enabled, and encouraged, the more likely it is they'll have highly engaged employees and be more productive in an organization. That's one of the commonalities. And, and another is that there's a difference between content and context. So context has changed dramatically in the last 18 months. That's being played out, uh, and that's heightened the level of, of tension that people are experiencing in their personal lives and organizational lives. Uh, so, but, but the content of leadership, the five practices, has remained as viable today as it was when we first started. But the other thing that's quite interesting is when we look at personal best leadership st- uh, stories that people tell us, they're all about adversity, difficulty, and challenge, every one of them. There's not one story where somebody says, well, I did my best by keeping everything the same. <laughs> just That's when I was exist. at my best. <laughs> I was at my best. I just, you know, did did kind of a moderately good job and you know, didn't really stretch myself and didn't challenge other people to do better. And everything's about adversity, difficulty, challenge. Uh, and, and so if people can look at the current situation as these challenges are opportunities, for us to try some new things that can can make make the world a better place. I mean, just look at the development of the vaccine as an example. When there is a, a significant challenge to everyone on the planet and people need some kind of intervention that's going to help us to prevent 
illness and, 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 and to improve our chances of survival, they'll do great things, you know, get businesses to cooperate with each other and, and develop a vaccine when they in, in the past would just compete and never share information. Well, we need to look at these other challenges in a similar way. This is, this is important to our growth, development, and survival. It's important to our kids that we do something about this situation. Let's figure out a way we can work together, do our best as leaders so that we can make extraordinary things happen. It's well said. Jim, I always close out the podcast by asking guests what they've been listening to, streaming, watching. It may have something to do with leadership, could have nothing to do with leadership, but what are you consuming that's caught your eye in recent months? Well, I mentioned a book which I I do recommend now. It's, it's a, just out this month, and uh, it's Amanda Ripley's book called High Conflict. I think she does an amazingly jo- amazing job of, of talking about these issues in a way that uh, we can all learn from, and I've just high, high regard for her work. I, on a regular basis, listen to a couple of podcasts I just find fun and entertaining, and but also on topic. Uh, one's called No Stupid Questions, which is with uh, Stephen Dubner and uh, Angela Duckworth. The two of them talk about a question that a reader asks, and uh, they they bring some of our applied behavioral science to that. And then uh, Stephen Dubner's podcast, Freakonomics. I, I love to listen to that too. And I do listen to occasionally TED Talks, Revisionist History, uh, Malcolm Gladwell's podcast and Adam Grant's podcast. So I, I probably listen more to podcasts that are on related to, you know, my interests. Uh, these may not be for everyone, but if you're interested in this kind of work, no stupid questions in Freakonomics are a couple of those that I, I like to stream. Jim. Thank you, sir. Thank you for the good work that you do. It's changed my life. I know that it's, I, I, it's, it's changed my life. I know that, that it has uh, changed many others' lives as well. Just even the framing of how you all think about leadership, it's a game changer. Thank you, Scott. I really appreciate the opportunity to chat with you. It's been it's fun talking about this, and uh, I look forward to more conversations. Okay, sir. Be well. Thank you. As you may have noticed, the work of Jim Cousins and Barry Posner is close to my heart. That's where it began for me, where I first understood that leadership was something that was available to all, that was an activity, that was a concept that could be studied. And as a result of that, I went to graduate school. I explored leadership as a PhD candidate, and the rest is history, so to speak. So to Jim and Barry, thank you very, very much for the work that you've done. Everyday People Extraordinary Leadership. For 30 plus years, they have engaged in this work to help people like us better understand what it means to be a great leader. A couple things stand out for me. Credibility is foundational. Uh, Values are central. Trusting relationships are key. And I think for me... One more component of all of this that at times can be misconstrued is that it's a shared vision. Great leaders listen. They pay close attention to others around them, and it's a shared vision. They simply are a piece of putting that together so that they and their teams have a clear picture in a general sense of where they want to head. Finally, a learning mindset. 
A learning mindset means that you are engaged in that activity of learning throughout your time as a leader and hopefully beyond, because that curiosity, that learning mindset keeps us on the cutting edge, keeps us in tune with what's happening, and hopefully leads to success. Jim and Barry, thank you for your work. Best of luck as you write the next edition. Take care, everybody. Be well. See you soon. You, my friend, have just finished another episode of Phrenesis Practical Wisdom for Leaders. To get in touch with me, visit www.scottjallen.net or send me a note at scott at scottjallen.net. I can also be found on Twitter and on LinkedIn. Now, if you have feedback, I would love to hear it. And as always, thank you so much for listening to Phrenesis. If you like Phrenesis, I have a second podcast. It's called the Captovation Podcast. That's with an O, Captovation Podcast, where I speak with experts on the topic of designing and delivering incredible presentations. And now, Kate's twin sister, Emily, with the outro. You've been listening to Phrenesis, Practical Wisdom with Scott Allen.